God is glorious in his saints. Welcome to the Christian Saints Podcast, where we explore the calendar of the church. I am your host, James John Marks, recording from the city of Chicago. This week, we will consider the life of St. Gregory of Utrecht. Utrecht is a providence in the Netherlands, which was first established as a bishopric in the year 695 by St. Willebrod in the remains of an ancient Roman fort settlement through the permission of the local Frankish rulers. St. Gregory was born just over 10 years later and would eventually become the abbot of St. Martin's as well as the administrator of the diocese, although he was never given Episcopal consecration and is only incorrectly sometimes referred to as a bishop. We will consider a brief biography from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Gregory was born of a noble family at Trier. His father, Alberic, was the son of Odula, who, as widow, was abbess of the Petzl near Trier. On account of the similarity of names, and in consequence of a forged last will, Adulla has been frequently confounded with Adala, daughter of Dugbert II of Austrasia, thus falsely making Gregory a scion of the royal house of the Merovingians. He received his early education at Budsel, when, in the year 722, Saint Boniface passed through Trier on his way from Frisia to Hesia and Thuringia. He rested at this convent. Gregory was called upon to read the sacred scriptures at meals. Saint Boniface gave an explanation and dwelt upon the merits of an apostolic life in such warm and convincing terms that the heart of Gregory was filled with enthusiasm. He announced his intention of going with St. Boniface and nothing could move him from his resolution. He now became the disciple and in time the helper of the great apostle of Germany, sharing his hardships and labors, accompanying him in all his missionary tours, and learning from the saint the secret of sanctity. In the year 738, St. Boniface made his third journey to Rome. Gregory went with him and brought back many valuable additions for his library. At about the year 750, Gregory was made the abbot of St. Martin's in Utrecht. In the year 744, St. Willebrod, the first bishop of Utrecht, had died, but had received no successor. St. Boniface had taken charge and had appointed an administrator. In the year 754, he started on his last missionary trip and took with him the administrator, St. Oban, who was to share his crown of martyrdom. After this, Pope Stephen II and Pepin ordered Gregory to look after the diocese. The school of his abbey, a kind of missionary seminary, was now a center of piety and learning. Students flocked to it from all sides, Franks, Frisians, Saxons, 
even Bavarians and Swabians. England, though it had splendid schools of its own, sent scholars. Among his disciples, St. Ludger is best known. He became the first bishop of Munster later and wrote the life of Gregory. In it, he extols the virtues of Gregory, his contempt of riches, his sobriety, his forgiving spirit, and his alms deeds. Some three years before Gregory's death, a lameness attacked his left side and gradually spread over his entire body. At the approach of death, he had himself carried into church and there breathed his last. His relics were religiously kept at Utrecht and in the year 1421 and again in the year 1597, they were examined at Episcopal visitations. A large portion of his head is in the church of St. Amilgurga at Cistern, where an official recognition took place on the 25th of September in the year 1885 by the Bishop of Rermond. Despite his relics not being examined until the middle of the second millennium, St. Gregory is recognized by the Orthodox Church as well as Roman Catholics. Butler's Lives of the Saints, a multi-volume omnibus first published by the Roman Catholic priest Alban Butler in the middle of the 18th century, includes the following anecdote, which is our primary focus in choosing St. Gregory for this week's reflection. When the murderers of his two brothers were sent to him by the civil magistrates to be put to what death he should think fit, according to the barbarous custom of the country in that age, which left the punishment of the assassin to the direction of the relation to the deceased person, the saint gave every one of them a suit of clothes with alms and dismissed them with good advice. We are immediately reminded of the extensive account of our Lord Jesus Christ's words regarding childlike forgiveness found in the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, beginning with verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. In our contemporary society, forgiveness is rare, especially public forgiveness. Capital punishment is commonplace around the world, even in culturally Christian nations. On the internet, cancel culture looms over the heads of all celebrities, and politicians live in constant fear of even the perception of a skeleton in not only their own closet, but in the closets of anyone in their family or on their staff. The materialist nature of the prevailing culture has, on the one hand, embraced the concept of social evolution, while on the other hand, lost the concept of personal growth, repentance, and forgiveness. In the United States in particular, we imprison more persons per capita than any nation on earth except China, despite referring to ourselves as the land of the free. At one time, our system of incarceration was at least claimed to be structured around rehabilitation. We called the relevant facilities correctional institutions. The goal was to rehumanize, re-educate, and reorient persons with a goal toward reclaiming their place in civilized society. Today, our discussion around trials and sentencing make it clear our focus is entirely around reparation, punishment, and dehumanizing with the goal of abandoning convicts too at best, the outskirts and fringes of society in perpetuity, even for relatively minor offenses. In this context, St. Gregory's decision to forgive the murderers of his brothers can shock and confuse us. Part of the problem facing us is the abuse of the word love in culture today. We mistake love for carnal desire. We mistake love for an emotion of affection. We mistake love for not demanding people change, even for the better. 
Love is treating people like an icon of Christ, no matter who they are or what they have done, even if we do not like them, even if they are evil. The other problem is our abuse of the word judgment. We mistake judgment for discerning right from wrong. We mistake judgment for recognizing a civilized society must have norms and mores to be functional. We mistake judgment for hoping people want to become a better person tomorrow than they were yesterday. Judgment is restructuring reality to be correctly ordered. Ultimately, it is the distinction between what is heavenly and what becomes hell. Judgment is God's alone because we are not capable of rightly seeing how to establish this order. But the commandment, judge not lest you yourself be judged, clearly cannot mean we cannot point out when something that someone has done is morally wrong because we cannot love someone if we ignore the things they do which prevent them from growing into the likeness of Christ, which should be our deepest desire for everyone. These errors in the understanding of love and judgment lead to phenomena such as the flame wars observable on social media in response to the Love Judas meme. When someone says Christianity is about loving Judas, our mind conjures up the idea of tolerating someone within our community who steals from us and allows them to undermine governance through betrayal. In other words, we mistake the idea of loving Judas for letting Judas get away with murder. Aside from taking the metaphor far too literally, this perspective misses the point by applying materialist cultural definitions of love and judgment rather than biblical ones. The Bible is, in essence, the story of God's love and judgment. God's love saw what was formless and void, disordered and empty, and said, let there be. The creation in Genesis is in good order and full of life. A swamp is full of life, but it is disordered and dangerous. A parking lot is well organized, but it is lifeless. A garden is organized, safe, and can not only sustain life, but is capable of being fruitful and multiplying. God, the King, executed his justice, his judgment. In Revelation, we see the culmination of God's plan for this creation, which will ultimately come to the full maturity of this well-ordered abundance of life. Everything in the middle of the story is the constant cycle of human disorder producing death. And God, because he is love, having to judge, that is to say, having to reorder, reorient, and correct us. God's wrath, as it is sometimes translated, is pedagogical, not pejorative. We can love Judas and still speak out against his theft and betrayal. It is possible to repent of the sins of theft and betrayal. The point where Judas is beyond our love is his despair which led to his suicide. Had the other disciples not been in hiding, fearing for their own lives in the wake of Jesus' arrest, trial, conviction by the Jewish council, and execution by the Roman authorities, they may have been able to prevent Judas from falling into despair over what he had done, and then he, like Peter, could have been forgiven by Jesus after Christ's resurrection. 
In a way, all the disciples betrayed Jesus. Peter denied him vehemently. Even John, who was present at the foot of the cross, is hiding in the upper room when the resurrected Jesus appears suddenly in their midst. Judas was frustrated by the realization Jesus' ministry was not to establish an autonomous Jewish state. But the other eleven are still confused about this right up until the moment of Jesus' ascension, more than a month after his resurrection. These sins are not beyond forgiveness. By the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, the Holy Spirit descends, and the fiery preaching which results not only on the day of Pentecost, but for decades afterward, literally changed the whole world. Loving someone, forgiving someone, not judging someone, does not mean letting them do whatever they want or letting them walk all over us. Saint Gregory did not send away the murderers simply with gifts and saying, it does not matter what you did, do not worry about it. He gave them good advice. He sent them out equipped to have a life more rightly ordered than they had had before. His desire was not to pretend that the death of his brothers did not mean anything. His desire was to see these other men become more like Christ. The world needs us to be like St. Gregory, ready to forgive through genuine love which desires change, not false love which pretends that it is just fine for everyone to stay just the way they are. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Christian Saints podcast. This has been a joint production of Paradosis Pavilion and Generative Sounds. If this podcast has been edifying for you, please consider the entire Paradosis Pavilion catalog, as well as the music of Generative Sounds, both of which can be accessed via their respective websites indicated in the episode description. Please contact us through our social media channels if you are interested in providing us with feedback or engaging us in conversation, which we would welcome. We would humbly ask you to subscribe to the podcast at whichever publication service you are utilizing, and would also request you share this podcast with those you care about in the hope as many people as possible may have their spiritual lives enriched through a fuller awareness of the church calendar. Please forgive us our shortcomings and pray for us. We will end this episode with what is known as the prologue of the gospel according to St. John, which is the first 18 verses of the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. 
But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John bore witness to him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. But the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. prayers of your holy fathers, O Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Amen.